Welcome to the VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign that is committed to changing the way the Security Council veto is used. Over the course of VetoCast, we have focused on the illegitimate use of the veto power by the permanent five members of the Security Council. But what makes a veto illegitimate, and how should the veto function? To understand the nature of an illegitimate veto, we must first understand why the veto power was created, and why there are five permanent seats on the Security Council. This can be explained by looking at why the UN was founded. The United Nations was founded on the 24th of October 1945. An earlier attempt at forming an organisation for international collaboration, the League of Nations, had failed. It had been unable to prevent the outbreak of the Second World War. The main reason for this failure was concluded to be a lack of involvement from the major powers. Decisions made were obsolete because it didn't have a large enough political influence. With lessons learned, One of the key thoughts when founding the new organisation, the United Nations, was to make sure all the major powers were included. The P5 members' own security was one of the most important topics at the time, with the Second World War fresh in their minds. The veto was introduced in this context. The main purpose of the veto was to assure that no decisions went against the major powers' own sovereignty or national security. It was also a demand for the involvement of several of the permanent members. The voting procedures of the Security Council is mandated through the 27th chapter of the UN Charter. The veto is a term for a negatively cast vote on certain issues from one of the P5, although it's not explicitly called a veto. For a resolution to be passed on the Security Council, it has to have at least nine positive votes of the Council's possible 15. An abstention, or an absent vote, is not considered a negative one. The veto comes into play when one of the P5 casts a negative vote on an important issue. When this occurs, the resolution cannot be passed, even if it gets the nine positive votes. When this occurs, the resolution can't be passed, even if it gets the nine positive votes it needs. A veto can be considered legitimate if it's put to its intended use, to safeguard a P5 member's own sovereignty or national security and is within the guidelines of the UN as stated in the UN Charter. A veto becomes illegitimate when it's used for other purposes, such as safeguarding hot-topic political issues or security interests for allies. There are examples of this over the course of the UN's history. The veto privilege of the P5 members was not intended to be a political instrument to dictate what aims the UN should pursue. When a veto is used in that manner and goes against the guidelines of the UN Charter, it should be considered an illegitimate veto. One of the more recent examples of a misuse of the veto came in the wake of the Crimean crisis in 2014. The handling of this issue in the Security Council demonstrates a questionable use of the veto that goes beyond the core concerns of the P5s. The Crimean Peninsula, or Crimea in short, has a long and complicated history with Russia. 
Crimea became a part of the Russian Empire in the beginning of the 19th century, and later a part of the USSR. When the USSR collapsed and Ukraine became independent in 1991, Crimea became an autonomous republic within the Ukrainian Republic. Elena Namli, Professor of Ethics at the Faculty of Theology and one of three research directors at UCRS, the Uppsala Centre for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Uppsala University. What is crucial in legal perspective is, of course, and in, in, in the perspective of international law, that the Russian Federation, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, recognized the borders. And since that, uh, Crimea is a part of a Ukraine nation-state. Since independence from the Soviets, Ukraine has had a rocky road towards a stable political climate. Like many former USSR states, it's been haunted by corruption, mismanagement in the public sector, and a lack of economic growth. This climate has led to large protests against the government over the years, the Orange Revolution of 2004 being one of the more notable. Since 2004, Ukraine has sought to establish a closer relationship to the European Union through political reform. One of these reforms was a treaty between the EU and Ukraine, drafted in 2012, it was called the Ukraine-European Union Association Agreement, and it was thought it would establish a political and economic association between the two parties. The president of Ukraine was Viktor Yanukovych, who had been accused of voter fraud in 2004, but later, in 2010, won the presidency. The treaty with the EU was not signed by Yanukovych. He instead signed a treaty and a multi-billion dollar loan agreement with the Russian Federation. This sparked civil unrest in Kiev and other parts of Ukraine, as it was seen that Yanukovych guarded Russian interests rather than that of Ukraine. The protests eventually led to revolution, and Yanukovych was ousted from the presidency. An interim government was set up and constitutional changes were made. The Russian Federation didn't accept this interim government as a legitimate power. Their focus fell on Crimea, with its large population of Russians. On the 27th of February in 2014, masked Russian troops without insignias took control over the Supreme Council of Crimea. A pro-Russian government was put in power, and on the 16th of March, a referendum regarding Crimea's status was held. The referendum asked whether the people of Crimea wanted to join Russia as a federal subject or restore the Crimean constitution to its form in 1992. The referendum resulted in overwhelming support for the option to join Russia. Since the 18th of March, Russia has effectively administered over the Republic of Crimea, as well as the local government of Sevastopol, as two federal subjects. The referendum was heavily criticised by the international community, as it left out any option of status quo. The Crimean Constitution of 1992 delegated power to the Crimean government, it was given full sovereign powers, rendering the government free to make international commitments. Both options of the referendum could therefore be seen as a way of separating Crimea from Ukraine. The referendum also took place during military occupation from Russian forces, which may have had some influence on the voting pattern. We go back to Elena Namli. Uh, there are, of course, several motives, as uh, as uh, it often is in international and uh, international politics. Uh, we, we have to think that the majority of population on Crimea uh, 
is Russian. More than half of population is Russian. We have two great minorities, Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars. An official, official motive for annexation, or what in Russian terminology is officially called incorporation of Crimea, well, back to Mother Russia, in March 2014, is the will of people. And we remember that then in March it was organized a referendum on Crimea when uh, the vast majority of uh, those who, who participated in, in this uh, referendum voted for incorporation in, in, um, in the Russian Federation. Uh, now, recently, President Putin admitted that this referendum was very heavily organized by, by the Russian Federation. And then what, what uh, the Kremlin um, stated several times it is that this will of the people of Crimea uh, was interpreted in terms of people uh, being worried for the development in Kiev. What uh, uh, Russia, Russia has described uh, and still describes as an unconstitutional takeover in Kiev. Edward Gierczyk is a Ukrainian civilian. Many people, which I asked, before this conflict, a lot of people, they didn't want to associate them with Ukraine. They didn't want to speak Ukrainian, and of course I understand. Uh, their parents, their grandparents, perhaps they didn't speak Ukrainian, so that I understand. Uh, their view on that, uh, yeah, a lot of people, they think, yeah, they have... So, so to say, this defined pro-Russian uh, view that it is uh, Western Ukraine that invading uh, and torturing Eastern Ukrainian uh, civilians. But surprisingly, to my big surprise, there are a lot of people that don't, do not have this point of view, that uh, read other sources uh, of media, that uh, they can think and not only trust what uh, they are told on Russian TV. Trusting only Ukrainian TV, uh, I don't think it is uh, also 100% a reliable, reliable source uh, because th there is, I really experienced that there is this information war. People do not trust any source. So it's sort of a chaotic. But as I said, th th there are people, so to speak, pro Russian and uh, not pro Russian. It, it also depends a lot on age, like older age, when they are growing, they were grown up in Soviet Union times, so in their mind it is hard, it is almost impossible for them to change a point of view and start questioning leaders, start questioning regimes and uh, no, they just want to have their pension and they just want to uh, live normal life. I'm, I try to uh, keep on Skype with them, say, yeah, from time to time, maybe once, two weeks, uh, once every week. And uh, quite often in the in uh, May and yeah, even now, uh, they say that, uh, yeah, we were talking on Skype and suddenly my cousin says, oh, Edward, wait a second, uh, I think, yeah, I hear shooting, I hear shootings. So that's how they lived. And uh, there was uh, a lot of buglery in uh, stores were robbed. Uh, people going uh, freely on streets with weapon and uh, from what I feel people those civilians that live in Mariupol they don't know they they people are people don't have 
the complete source of information. They don't know uh, who the people are, if they are radical from Western Ukraine, whether they are pro-Russian hired people or whether they are just uh, local nationalist groups. Uh, yeah, you know, some people go with this AK, Kalashnikov weapon, and yes, you, you, you're not likely to ask them which party they represent. Before the referendum took place, the United States sponsored a resolution to the Security Council. The resolution urged for respecting Ukraine's sovereignty and its territory. It also called the referendum invalid. Thirteen members of the Security Council voted in favour of the resolution. China abstained. Russia voted against, thereby activating the veto. When debating the resolution, the Russian ambassador Vitaly Cherkin described the referendum as an extraordinary measure expressing the Crimean people's right to self-determination. It was made necessary by what he said was an illegal coup carried out by radicals in Ukraine. Elena Namli again. From the beginning of the escalation of the situation, almost all uh, experts spoke on the military importance of Crimea for Russia. And we are talking about uh, the harbor of Sevastopol, of course. And Russia has actually no no alternatives on the Black Sea, which, which, which can be compared with Sevastopol. Uh, and the new government in Kiev, which uh, which uh, Russia several reasons could not uh, could not uh, rely on, or at least said that it could not rely. On. I would say that I, I guess it is very important reason, but but not but then it could be also the case that the image of um, President Putin and Russian government it is uh, it was very important to frame itself as a strong power because for a long period of time and even before the war in Georgia but absolutely during the period of war in Georgia Russia has repeatedly said that um, that it demands respect for what Russia similar to the U- USA calls national interests and uh, and warned for what uh, in Russian terminology um, entitled as crossing the red line. And Ukraine was absolutely such red line that Russia uh, marked several times. In these days, I would say that in, in media, it is, very, it is um, mostly presented as kind of confrontation between Russia and USA. And Russia is framed as an actor who is trying to counteract the American ambition to be the leading power in, in, in the global, global situation. And for example, uh, we do not see Samantha Power as often on Swedish television, but we watch her almost every day in Russian television. And, it, and I guess it is something about even her ways of her way of even speaking in the in the United Nations um, forum. And of course, this is important for for domestic politics and and domestic uh, framing of Russian international politics. Then, then Russia is not is not as strong as as president putin and kremlin would like it to to be in the in the um, experiences of the russian population that it is of course it is at least my interpretation but i cannot i do not dare to say that this is the reason but it i would say it is plausible to su- suggest that it could be this way that it is most very very often about domestic politics we go back to edward gerchuk russians uh, Ukrainians and Belarusians, from what I read, from what history that we were taught, from the history which my parents were taught in Soviet Union times, 
the history is uh, common and uh, it's the uh, same people they are coming from 9th century uh, Kievan Rus it was called Kievan Rus and uh, that's where it all started so we have the uh, common roots common uh, ethnos and then uh, yes the history was uh, evolving through uh, centuries uh, but uh, eventually second until the first world war uh, ukrainian ukraine as um, as independent state did not exist it was uh, it was in people's mind it was of course uh, ukrainian ethnos existed but not independent state so uh, it was separated between a russian empire and uh, austrian hungarian empire so after fir- uh, after first world war when uh, the empire collapsed ukraine appeared on the map and then it became the part of uh, soviet union eastern ukraine belonged to russia for quite a long time and crimea since 1800s belonged to russia as well western ukraine however belonged to austrian hungarian empire and then yes between first world war and second world war western ukraine belonged to poland 1939 until now the ukraine it is as uh, in its uh, shape of 1939 yes with the difference of crimea crimea was was exchanged i think it was taganrog region that was exchanged to crimea 1939 then 1953 that happened and then since 1953 uh, the shape of ukraine did not change on the map uh, it wasn't it was not independent state it was a state within it was a socialist republic as did many other countries it was 17 uh, countries the soviet union so until 1991 1991 when the after the collapse of soviet union was uh, Yes, Ukraine gained its independence and we have our own territory, we have our own sovereignty, we have a right to decide which way to go. Yes, so that's the, I think it's a brief historical background. But I think it's important to know that ethnically, Rush, Russians and Ukrainian, they have the same roots. Uh, not well considering, not all the Russians and again, not all the Ukrainians, but uh, the the roots of Russia and Ukraine, they are, they are the same. Of course, tensions uh, between uh, Ukrainian nationalists and between Russian, even going to Eastern Ukraine, where people didn't want to speak Ukrainian. And uh, a lot of people didn't even know Ukrainian, but uh, all of my um, people of my age, they, they can speak Ukrainian. It's not that they do it every day, uh, but it is official language of the country. As I understand, and as it was presented in Russian media, the conflict started due to repressions from Western, from West Ukraine towards East. Repression regarding language and uh, national identity. If Eastern Ukraine has a strong spirit of having, of being able to identify themselves as Russians, then I think uh, Russia, even because of that, Russia has to be a part of solving this conflict. If you ask me one and a half year ago, when the conflicts when the revolution started no one would think of that no one would think things can happen inside ukraine but the integrity the sovereignty of ukraine no one has doubted it well after crimea we doubted it but if you asked me then after crimea annexation i wouldn't say that it can continue the conflict to eastern ukraine well now it is in eastern ukraine so now i but now at least if you ask me now whether i believe that the conflict would grow 
I would say I don't know. I wouldn't say definitely not, but I would say uh, I don't know. That's that's what I experienced during the whole last year. It was a year of big, unfortunate surprises for me. I think uh, that uh, well, we are more than forty million of people, which with a strong background, with a with a big potential of having a good economy, having a good army. We are brave people, but what I think it lacks is good discussions in whole media where they would represent all the points of view, not only banning, but discussing and saying, just discussing, not saying what is right and what is wrong. Let people decide what, what, uh, which side is. And also, I think, the, I would say that that's the most important. People need to believe in its government. People need to believe in the future of Ukraine. So the politicians have to be 100% clean. There shouldn't be any corruption. And I, I, I cannot say how they can treat their own citizens, which have chosen them, with the hope of solving things and with the hope of good life, how they can just neglect all their minds of million people, millions of people, and uh, being uh, corrupt. I, of course, I understand that there is a strong shift in the system. That, that I understand that it is very hard uh, to change things fast. And the results can be completely unexpected. Showing the people that, and not lying to them, not deluding them, not just having the vision, but showing the thing, people that they are doing things for Ukraine and for Ukrainian people, that is very important. And discussing. So those two things, I think they are essential in uh, solving uh, the conflict. Because there is a conflict inside Ukraine, not only supported by our neighbor, but uh, there is a conflict inside Ukraine, and that has to be solved. Of course, people want peace, and people want to live the life that they deserve, the life that they work for every day. But then, I, but then again, this is... Uh, Living here in Sweden and coming to Ukraine, I can clearly say that it's two different worlds in, uh, in people's minds. The veto from the Russian delegate is a clear example of an illegitimate veto. Even if you take the Russian ambassador's official reasons into account, the defence of the veto was clearly guided by interests beyond Russia's own sovereignty or national security. The purposes for their negative vote very evidently created an illegitimate veto. You have listened to The VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign, which is committed to changing the way the Security Council's veto is used. VetoCast is a co-production by the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes organization and Uppsala Student Radio 98.9. Project manager for VetoCast was Joanna Hellstrom. Production and audio editing by Simon Sander. Scripts by Alexander Friedman. Interviews by Joanna Hellstrom and Philip Alborn. This production was narrated by Leila Mendy. Our thanks to Daniel Schellen and Hannah Wernerschun and the rest of the team behind the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign. It is our world, and the global challenges are of everyone's concern. For peace and prosperity, we need an efficient UN. For more information, visit our webpage at www.stopillegitimatevetoes.org and our Facebook page. Let's stop illegitimate vetoes.